This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. You're now listening to Boomsies with Dan O'Toole on the Bet Rivers Network. Happy holidays. Uh, we're doing something a little different for this episode. Usually during uh, the time off at Christmas, we do a best of. But this show is not even a year old yet. And I said, enough of the best ofs, guys. We're, we're doing a full episode. So instead of uh, cozying up uh, by myself... We're cozying up with a guest for the entire podcast, something we've never done. So this is a first for Boomsies. It's episode 49, the Brian Savage episode, a player our guest today may have played against, not sure. They may have missed each other. They may have been ships passing in the night. We're pleased and excited to have an ex-NHLer who has found maybe even a fuller life after hockey as he earned a doctorate in psychology now works with players. That's just the tip of the iceberg with this man. Please welcome Dr. Jay Harrison, the pride of Bowmanville, Ontario. And for the majority of people that don't know, I taped this podcast eight minutes from your hometown, Jay. So that leads me to assume you have played at the Orono Arena, which has the best ice in Ontario. Best ice outside my backyard when I was a kid. Yes, very crispy, very crunchy. Um, I will have to add, though, I got a lot of uh, my Whitby peeps. I uh, will say uh, Bowmanville was my adopted home for a bit. Uh, Whitby uh, was the place that I called home, so I have to pay tribute uh, to the great town of Whitby, a great place to be from. Have you been to the Orno Fair? I have not been to the Orno what? Fair. Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Fair was where the Whitby kids went. The Brooklyn Fair is where the summer kickoff is. That kicks off the summer, and that's where everyone goes to the uh, the beer tent, and you always hear, yeah, there was a big brawl there last night. <laughs> right. Well, when fall came around, when it was time to get in trouble at fairs, I, I was off pursuing uh, and pretty focused on a career in hockey. So there wasn't much trouble to be found in the fall. Good. Good. Now, you're the second retired player to appear on this podcast to have a degree in psychology, Colin Wilson being the other. So we lead all podcasts in hockey players turn psychologists. So you two are bashing away the preconceived notion of what a hockey player is really like. So congrats on that. Thank you. Uh, that is a mission for me to do, not just on my own, but uh, to allow every hockey player to break out of that self-contained mold uh, and live their best life through the game, not sacrifice their best life to be a hockey player. So, did you get into this while you were playing? Did you start taking courses? When did it come to you where you're like, okay, there's more to life than hockey. I just don't want to run a hockey school when I'm retired. When did this light bulb moment happen for you? Well, continuing education was always important. 
even through my junior experience uh, playing in Brampton, uh, it wasn't, you know, the 1975 OHL experience. Um, you know, we all went to class and we were all committed to that and held accountable to achieve what we were capable of in school. So that was set in, in very early and uh, through my adolescence. I, I like school, you know, transitioning to a pro athlete, um, always something I wanted to continue to do. Um, but as I continued as a pro, I started to find, obviously, you, you come to a point where you may not play the game forever. That does sink in when, when you get out against uh, other professionals and the road isn't as easy as uh, it may have been. Uh, certainly, that was a part of it in recognizing that uh, I've got to cultivate a part of myself that isn't related just to this performance aspect of this game. Um, but something happened during that process. It was a catalyst. So I started you know, taking chorus courses and, and chipping away at my degree, which I had started while playing junior. Uh, started chipping away and something changed. Something happened within me. Um, started to see new potential in myself. Others started to see potential in me not related to what I was normally known for, which was was being a you know a high performing athlete, uh, and that set in motion a that athletic commitment and obsession uh, to academics as well, which was my passion. And uh, so I started in my my second or third year pro and continued all the way through, um, having almost completed my master's when I was finished sixteen years later. Um, to which I continued after I retired to continue to gain the credentialing and experience needed to to make a difference in the space. And did. Were there moments when you were playing in the NHL where you said, man, I wish there was, I wish there was more tools for us here. Was that uh, seed planted while you were playing as well? It certainly was. Um, you know, I often, you know, talk about my own experience. I certainly watched, you know, other teammates and it's a fancy, you know, catchphrase that I used at the beginning there is to live your best life through the game, not sacrifice your best life to be an athlete. Saw a lot of people sacrificing their best selves to be athletes. And I was, you know, one of them in many ways. Um, I didn't, you know, get into psychology or, you know, become a therapist um, and study the field because I was the one who who could be studied and, and did it correctly. In fact, I was one who probably could have benefited the most um, in finding more effective and adaptive tools and strategies to manage the ups and downs of the game that accompany, you know, a, a career in professional sports and all that comes with that, like we talked about, you know, from the days of the Bowmanville Fair beyond, there was nothing else, right? It's an, it's an enormous amount of weight to carry. Uh, and we're not all equipped. Some are more equipped and, and more suited to, to manage that pressure than others. We're all individuals in that respect. But certainly there are those who make it look easier than it might be for themselves. They're very talented people and can, can do their jobs very well despite some internal distress. Uh, but it was certainly something I reflected on as I began to study, um, interested in, in medicine, physiology, the natural things that I, I was working towards. Uh, I realized at the end of a lot of the biology courses, I was really interested in people, uh, better understanding, you know, why we do what we do, how we evolve, how we develop, how we learn, how we change. Uh, so the, the trek towards psychology and then, you know, being involved uh, in that process for people became a passion. Uh, and I wanted to ensure I was on a trajectory that I could I could make a meaningful contribution to that, especially in the lives of, of you know, who are my cohorts, my peers, my brothers and sisters uh, in sport, but to the greater world as a whole as well. Um, those who are struggling to find, you know, that catalyst to, to help them change the course and trajectory of their life. So I wanted to leave the game and I wanted to be able to get in the trenches. And there's only one way to do that in psychology, and that's to hit the books and hit them hard. 
Now, you see uh, my very good friend Steve Webb a lot. Um, he raves about you. That's why you're here. You uh, He put us in touch uh, with one another. He cares about players. Uh, he wants to see them have a life uh, post-hockey. So he tries to be side-by-side side with you whenever he is with teams. So when you go talk to a team, what happens? Be- pull the curtain back a little bit because you consult with the NHL. You go speak to a team. What do you tell them? Sure. Uh, first of all, shout out to Steve Webb, one of the most passionate, caring, intelligent guys around the game. Was tough as nails. Was actually so informative in, uh, in my life. Uh, we're going to go up to Ennismore in the Canadian Hockey Enterprises Hockey School. Our my counselor when I was like nine. Paul was Crowley. Steve. Yes, the Paul Crowley School. Steve Webb was one of our instructors, counselors there. Uh, and sure enough, full circle, at the opportunity in consulting uh, with the NHLPA. Um, to, to work with Steve and actually see his passion. And he means it. He lives it every day. And it's not just about creating the best working conditions for players and the collective bargaining component to which he's in, incredibly well suited to, uh, to contribute to, but also the lives of the players during their career and afterwards. So he's been profoundly influential and, and a, a huge supporter of mine to which I owe a great debt of gratitude. Uh, but working, you know, you know, with players in the, the players association context, uh, it's really about ensuring athletes are aware of the resources they have to become the most self-directive, active participants in their own life that we can create. Uh, one of the things that makes us great athletes is that we're we're very manageable. We can be directed and responsive. Uh, that doesn't always necessarily translate to all areas of our life as being a, a valuable trait. Um, at times, we need to be our own advocate. Uh, so our, our goal at the PA is to create as many resources as possible and ensure our athletes have the education, awareness and skills uh, to be their own health advocate and be ha- advocates for each other, uh, to use the resources we have that are collectively bargained for them between the league and the players association that support their long term viability and well-being in the academic world. We call it career excellence, right? Sustained performance, you know, on and off the pitch or the field, so to speak. Um, and how do we put our, our athletes in a position to do that, knowing that this career is is but a chapter in their life, a very important chapter, maybe the pinnacle chapter, maybe not. Uh, we want to ensure that they have the life skills to be their own health advocate, to be self-directed in their own development. Now, you say that, but OK, so you're, you're a different mindset than a lot of the hockey players I know. If you come in and say, hey, you guys should take these courses, you leave that room. You're saying, well, I'm not going to do that. How do you get it into their brain? Like, guys, this doesn't last forever because when you're in the moment, heck, if I was playing in the NHL, I'm like, this is going on forever. I'm going to be making this money. Life is easy. Because a lot of times when you tell someone you should do this, they're going to say, no, screw you. I'm going to do it my own way. So how do you break down that wall? Yeah, great Great point. Uh, the idea is that you're, you know, the, the old thing you used to see, there was an old picture on the walls, like one day and that need for an education or whatever is going to hit you like a ton of bricks. And it's an injured football player on the field. And you find that that actually doesn't work very well telling everybody they need a plan B, right? It actually does the opposite effect, right? It kind of reaffirms why I need to be fully invested in plan A today. And there's a lot of research that suggests athletes at some level recognize their need to, you know, plan for the future, especially in this professional development space. Uh, But few of them act on it or or recognize there's a sense of uh, procrastination uh, towards it. What I found through my journey, that catalyst we talked about, 
through education is I actually found that I wasn't preparing for plan B at all. I was supporting plan A. Uh, I found my involvement off the ice, who I was becoming, what I was learning, what I was recruiting was incredibly performance enhancing, right? I was able to mitigate the ups and downs and stresses of the game through an outlet, a vehicle that I felt good about. It gave me that, you know, self-efficacy, that confidence, that relatedness. It gave me an expanded social circle. So, you know, one day when you're minus four and you come home, like, well, that's bad, but there's some other things to feel good about. And, you know, when you're plus four, you know, well, you're not exactly on top of the mountain. It was great. It won't be there forever. What else can we feel good about that's, you know, more just yours? And I really saw it as, as a source of resilience. And, and some of my other teammates started asking questions as well and got me thinking. I started hearing other stories as well about other players with similar experiences is that they get in this, uh, that sense of, of flow and in the zone and the game just becomes a game. I'm able to leave uh, the game at the rink. But I'm also able to take great things to the rink with me. And that's sometimes missed that we, we often talk about don't take the game home with you. Don't take, you know, your, your crap home with you, so to speak. I often will ask players, like, what are you taking good with you? What's putting you in a position to succeed, you know, to feel really good, confident about yourself and be your best self today at the rink? And for me, that was education. It doesn't have to be that. You can be involved in, in a number of things. I mean, we have lots of players who do podcasts. We have lots of players who are small business owners, investors, uh, philanthropic uh, initiatives. So there's lots of different things you can get passionate around. The goal is to have something that's uh, somewhat of a standalone. And we actually see that that has profound effects in the moment, not just for plan B. So a lot of my research resonates around, well, what is the experience of players who are doing that? How do they function comparatively speaking? Uh, and we do see athletes who are more involved in career engagement, things outside of sport, networking, career planning, things like that. They actually have a higher level of mental well-being, right? It actually supports them. We put someone in the best mental state possible. They're going to perform well. And even some of the research out of Australia is showing that actually there's a direct translation. We see athletes who are more involved in career development activities through their clubs or through their unions actually perform better on the field. It's an Aussie, uh, Australian rugby study. Um, so we talk to players, the long way I guess I'm getting to is that being involved outside the game supports your performance today. It's performing enhancing behavior. Yeah. And plan B, we will worry about plan B later. It's about making you the best player you can be today. And what are some alternative resources we could look to invest in to give you every opportunity to play the game for as long as you can. So what you pretty much described is a busy mind is a healthy mind. You keep your mind busy. I can take, for example, yesterday, I realized at uh, seven o'clock, I'm like, I haven't been outside today. And I'm like, and I was like feeling sluggish. I was feeling irritable. And it's when you dumb it down, what you say is very easy to understand. It, just don't be idle. And then you'll have much more happiness after hockey. Yeah. Finding, you know, we often say, you know, you know, what's your why? What's your passion? Do you have a purpose? And part of that, you don't, doesn't necessarily have to be clear, but connecting to something that's yours, that, that gives you that sense of, of competence and relatedness to other people, uh, that, that sense of, of growth, uh, can be a very powerful performance enhancing tool and can really help buffer against the stresses of the game. Those plus fours and minus fours, they, they happen to D, especially like me. Um, yeah. They don't happen to everybody as often as they did to me, but um, <clears throat> they, they can help mitigate some of that. And really that's what it is. How, how we're emotionally impacted by the game, the highs and lows 
is a huge, de- uh, you know, determining factor in our our experience. You know, how how do we think and feel, right? And that that's really how we describe well being. So it's about gaining more tools in your toolbox uh, and giving yourself greater opportunities to grow and 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 continue to to evolve and develop. That's not just tied to your performance in the game. Okay, so put your psychology hat on. Here's something I, till the day I die, I will never be able to wrap my head around. You're in the NHL. You play a game in front of 18,000 people. You're on the road, even if you're at home. You say, leave what you just did at the rink and then go home. How do you, like there's, you've lived it. There must be no high like that high when you hear that crowd. Your body is just, buzzing when you leave there how can a player rest his mind after that it's a very individual experience uh i know a lot of players especially those who are established believe it or not the national hockey league is a workplace uh and it comes very naturally to them to leave what happened there and move on uh very quickly um but you you do mention that it can be challenging especially when it relates to you know, things like sleep uh, and how people get to sleep uh, coming off that both psychological and physiological high uh, of playing at a high level at night. Right. Um, then you have a meal. Um, it can be very difficult to, to wind down. So, you know, that's a very individual process. We we try to help our players devolve, evolve and develop. And, you know, whether that is, you know, through a process of some sort of experience, just as you get up for that game. Uh, you have a meaningful, sustainable way to come down, right? You know, whether that's through, you know, people will connect with a partner or spouse. People uh, will share a more personal, you know, practice, uh, breathing, meditation, mindfulness uh, is, is a great way to be able to generate that sense of calm and peace and overcome some of that nervous system stimulation. Um, and And it becomes a practice, right? Finding your own way to do it. And the best ones tend to do it quite quickly. Right. And again, it's being tied to those highs and lows and being a professional is is managing that ability to perform at a high level and all that comes with it in a very sustainable way. Is it easier to be a player in the NHL now? Because we've discussed you've mentioned mental health a few times. Is it easier now than when you played or maybe even 10 years before you played? Because and I'm not uh, naming names here. Uh because he said it on this podcast, but Connor Ingram, uh, he entered the the league's uh uh I play what I forget what the program's called. He entered the league's program to help players in need uh, because as he said on this podcast, he went into the trainer's room one day and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to quit. And they said, we're going to get you the help. Mm-hmm. I don't think that moment would have ever happened 20 years ago or correct me if I'm wrong. Has it, is it night and day from what it used to be with, with uh, in terms of mental health in the NHL? Well, I certainly think it's different. Um, whether it's more difficult or less difficult is is a hard position to assess, and I don't really like to attribute you know one generational difficulty being harder than another. But uh, you know, the game has changed in many ways. Uh, the perceptions around mental health in society have changed in many ways, uh, and it seems there are, are more ways to experience mental health challenges with some of the developments in our society and. Um, having a, a very uh, public uh, profession and then, you know, even expanded even further uh, with some of, of the social media component that brings to a, a very different experience. So 
Uh, I certainly think some of the the norms of the culture of the game have started to shift and they're starting to shift very rapidly. I think that's for the benefit, but that's to meet with the ongoing demand of, of being a young professional in a high performance environment. Uh, the expectations are different. Uh, the, the public scrutiny is very different. You know, there's, there's no other job like a professional athlete. Uh, you're, except maybe, you know, uh, someone who, who's, a, who's an actor perhaps, and this is a loose analogy, but you are that athlete everywhere you go, right? A, you know, a mechanic or, or a doctor takes off that identity the, that people identify with them in that workplace and they can go eat at a restaurant and relatively no one knows what they do and are judging their behavior in relationship to you know, what they're supposed to be on TV, right? An athlete is always on and it can be very isolating. Um, and so that makes it very difficult. And I think that is only increasing as our society moves forward is that scrutiny and that sense of um, being in the public image. So uh, it makes it challenging, but it's, a, again, a part of, of the education process. And that begins at a very young level, educating our, our youth, the culture of our game at the, at the earliest level um, about how to mindfully uh, and sustainably uh, put themselves in a position for long-term success in the game because it can be very difficult and very challenging if you're not equipped with the skills to do it. Oh, I I can't imagine having a bad game. Detail guys, don't e don't even go on social media if you've had a bad game or you just try to tell them to avoid it because you know what it's like. You go you go into the comment section even if you aren't even involved in it. I see. I see someone post something uh, about someone's giveaway in a game or something, and they just rail on the player. And I'm like, oh, my God, this poor player, if he ever sees this, because I have so much empathy for people. I can't even watch some shows because I know it's fake, but I'm, I'm just filled with anxiety for these people. Do you give them a lesson on that, how to not dive into the comment section? Well, it, it certainly can become, you know, problematic. I mean, one of the things that makes athletes very great at what they do is they tend to not be overly uh, sensitive to criticism. Uh, generally speaking, some certainly are. I was. Uh, but, uh, you know, they tend to take negative feedback and constructive feedback quite well. In fact, they thrive on it. Uh, but others don't. And again, that's a personal decision. You have to, you know, really examine your relationship, you know, with social media uh, what its function is in your life. Is, is it fulfilling that function? Yes or no. And what needs to change for it to, to work for you rather than work against you. Um, again, a very individual experience. There are players who thrive. It is a, it is a vehicle for, for many uh, athletes to connect with things that they care about, um, to become a social advocate um, and promote their brand. Um, you know, and for others, uh, they, they may have a, a not as constructive relationship with social media may cause more more challenges for them than benefits. Uh, I think it, a really honest, objective assessment of that. I think it's that's just not a hockey thing. That's a society thing. Or, yeah. Are you using social media or is social media using you? That's a good question. You have to admit, I know you say you don't like to play uh, compare players from different generations, but a guy in the 50s, he's got a giveaway. No one saw it except anyone in the rink. They had it. They had it easier as far as that goes because they're like, ah, don't worry about it, buddy. No one saw it, but the people here. Well, I, that's a, it's a great way to understand like the differences in the game, right? And it's not a cop out. I mean, we'll go watch the Summit series and watch how long Esposito's ships are. Right? <laughs> how long are they? Like three minutes, three and a half minutes. 
right? He's, he's on the ice, right? <laughs> you, know, you get a guy who's on there for 50 seconds and he's stretching it out and he's dogging it, and right? Like if you're out there for a minute, if you're still out there for a minute with the exception of a, a few players uh, in our league, uh, you're either not going as hard as you can or, or you got hemmed in pretty good in your zone. Um, so you just, you know, it's a great, I think, it's very illustrative in how the game has changed uh, on the ice. And you would expect similar changes off the ice as well as, as it relates to players and, and the dynamics. The summit series, you got to admit, there was some pretty crappy goals too. Like there was some <laughs> goal score where you're like, okay, I was a goalie. I would have had that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it is. I, I could have used a few uh, goalies who were still in the stand up kick save mode uh, when yes. I played. Didn't didn't ever score any along the pond from the blue line with a goalie trying to make a kick save. The goalie, until they went butterfly, they would kick the leg out. So you're trying to stop it with the side of your leg. Made no sense. <laughs> the unpadded part of your leg. Yeah. By the way, yeah. I mentioned um, this is the Brian Savage episode. Did you ever play against him? Because I think your last his last year and your first year may have overlapped. I can't say for certain that I remember Brian. Uh, that doesn't mean um, we 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 didn't cross paths. Um, it's a lot of a lot of games in there. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, now, I when I uh, looked up uh, everything about you online and uh, talked to others, like I was talking to Brian Bickle, who's from Orono. You guys played the minors together, and uh, he's like, you know, he can play every instrument too. I'm like, what the hell? This the guy plays in the NHL, becomes a doctor, can play every instrument. Are you the most interesting man in the NHL? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> actually, there's a lot of guys in the NHL who think that's pretty boring. Um, <laughs> the guy studies books and and, uh, and plays instruments. Uh, no, a funny thing, like what I used to do, back in the day, like I shake my head, but like uh, I played, uh, you know, obviously stringed instruments come naturally, naturally to me. I come from a musical family. My grandfather, grandmother, my uncles taught me, um, you know, how to play at a very young age. I had a passion for music. It was like truly my my outlet that uh, was all mine. Um, and I loved it and, and I was committed to it as much as I was in sports. And I, I, I attribute a lot of my success, both, you know, in, in an ability to to learn music or, or to play a sport, you know, to to the discipline. You know, I think that is more of, you know, a part of my character, which... Uh, I, I rely on to be successful in, in whatever I do, uh, but I used to I used to take my fiddle like with me everywhere I went. Uh, big fan of, of Celtic music, especially Eastern Canadian music. I love the tradition. I love how the tunes change based on where you're going and the history of them, from Scottish tunes to Irish tunes to Acadian tunes, uh, French tunes. There's always a story. Uh, when you hear great players play, they never just play a tune; they tell a story first. Um, so uh, I, I love the I love the idea of, of music you dance to, and I would what's, take it what's with me. What's an East Coast party called? It's called a Kaylee, right? Right. Yep. Yes. Kitchen parties in Newfoundland. I'm, I'm I'm married to a Newfoundlander, so um, we have our kitchen. So parties you've been and... screeched in. Yes. Okay. And then Saba. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would actually travel with with my fiddle. I looked like you know like a little machine gun case. I, w- I would carry around me, and like I, I would play it on the road. And you know, there's so much time, and um, I want to do it. Guys looked at me side. I remember Pat Quinn looking at me kind of sideways. <laughs> um, but it was it was again, like I said, it was something that I f- 
made me feel great. I was, I was learning something new. I was acquiring a skill and a skill that I appreciated and valued about myself. And, uh, you know, Lord knows that we had a lot of time. Um, and then, you know, it, it also contributes really good when you, you have a, you know, a team party, a team get together or a long bus ride and, uh, the appropriate time to pull a guitar out is some of the most memorable team, team building exercises you can have is a little sing along on the bus. So, uh, those are some of the most cherished memories as well. So I had to put myself out there a little bit, probably got judged. That's okay. Um, but I was able to, to create a few you know, pretty special memories as well with some, with some teams. Okay, so when you go guitar sing along with the team, do you go tragically hip? Is that your go-to? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, depending, yeah, depending on the audience, you'll get a couple real uh, diehard hip fans. Uh, I had the coolest pleasure of of getting to hang out with them when I played in Toronto and getting to meet them personally uh, at the Phoenix. They were doing a couple shows, um, but had such an appreciation. And actually, the same guitar that I took on the bus, this little tiny, you know, Martin backpacker, Gord Downey did the same thing. So I was in good company, I guess. Ah, that's amazing. I, uh, I remember the day that Gord passed away and I heard it on the radio, driving my kids to school and then they played the hip all day. Oh my, yeah. I, I was just a puddle of tears because my backstory with Gord Downey and the tragically hip, I moved back from LA the night before I got this house. My lawyer's like, okay, Dan, this is weird. There's no keys to this house. This house came with no locks. <laughs> so, but they're like, but you can't just go stay there. We just say need to finalize the paperwork. So just get a hotel in Toronto tonight and then you have ownership tomorrow. So I went to a hotel called the Grand in Toronto. I've stayed in a lot of hotels in Toronto because I'd always have to fly back from LA, but I'd never stayed at the Grand and went down sitting at the bar and I see members of the hip, hip like Johnny Faye go by, I use the restroom, come back. And I'm like, I asked the bartender, I'm like, what's going on? They're like, oh yeah, they hang out here all the time. So I go over and I finally see Gord and he's like, hey, I know you. I'm like, hey, Gord. And I go into my story, how I, I love them and uh, they mean so much and uh, what he's done for, for Canadians and uh, for uh, indigenous Canadians. And he's like, well, do you want to come join us? So I sat with them the rest of the night and then got ownership of the house. And I, I saw it as the mayor of Canada welcoming me back to Canada the night before I got my house. So, and then he passed away like a month later. So there, there's very few humans where you meet where there's like an aura around them. People describe Barack Obama that way. Nelson Mandela. I think for Canadians, Gord Downey had that same kind of presence to him. Yeah, definitely. What a what a cool story to have. Uh, it's it's always wicked to reflect on the hip and uh, their impact on you know our life. I mean, my my parents were hip, like fans, like like literally like early like up to here road apples days, like driving down to Buffalo to see them in a high school gym stuff. And as a young guitar player at the time, like you know up to here was was a staple. Uh, you know, practicing bar codes to three pistols, you know, like that was just something, you know, that's in, ingrained in my brain. And one of the greatest lyricists of all time, uh, yeah. I put him up, I put him up there with the best. I put him up there with Bono and I put him up there with Dylan um, and his ability to weave in Canadiana as well. Um, very influential on um, one of my projects as well. I'm sure we'll talk about the, the Whitby watch company. Um, but people like Gord Downey were a huge catalyst for uh, wanting to tell Canadian stories. So that was the next thing to 
to further solidify you being the most interesting man in the NHL. You have a you're, you're part of a watch company, and we got into a big discussion over text how Shinola is the brand that I love. I got a, a free Shinola watch as a part of a, um, a thank you basket when I uh, Jay and I presented a video at the NASCAR Awards in Vegas, and I'd never gotten a gift basket before. And so I show up in my room and there's all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, what the hell? I thought it was like a $5 watch. And I looked it up. I'm like, I love this brand of watch. So how did you get into being part of a watch brand? Uh, yeah, great. It's a great story. Um, fell in love with watches when I had the opportunity to play in Switzerland. Um, you know, even, you know, the cab driver has this, you know, most beautiful Omega that he's wearing. Um <clears throat> You know, fell in love with the, with the idea of, of horology as well and the study of it. You know, it's truly uh, the old world innovation, right? It's one of the few things that remains is how we, you know, can track and keep time with such precision the way we've done for, for hundreds of years. Um, had a great idea with a cousin uh, and my uncle. Uh, you know, what if we had a Canadian watch company and our mission was to tell stories about Canadians and Canadian excellence, Canadian contributions to society and the world through the art of watchmaking. And I jumped on that. I, I, I found out as I retired, I'm a bit of an entrepreneur. I have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit and in following and innovating and doing new things that haven't been done. Uh, and we started to think about, well, what, what would we do and how would we make this, you know, truly authentic in, in what it is. And, and we, we settled on naming it after our hometown. There's six of us, Whitby. Uh, we're the Whippy Watch Company, and, and that was rooted in the first story we ever told, and that's the story of Sir William Stevenson, the man called Intrepid, and the legacy of Camp X and the special operations executive uh, that functioned on the shores of Lake Ontario during World War II, where the inspiration for the character James Bond come from, Sir William Stevenson from Winnipeg. Um, he worked in Whippy, Ontario, in our hometown, in our backyard, and not many people knew about it. I never uh, knew that. Yeah, so uh, it, it's uh, it's right on the shores. Intrepid Park uh, was where Camp X was, where uh, you know both the British uh, military as well as some American would train uh, in the clandestine operatives, uh, those who went undercover deep into enemy territory. Uh, and the inspiration from James Bond ultimately arose from what happened out of Camp X and and some of the the very cool spy stuff that they did there. Uh, and that was the first story we told uh, to share with the world and, and building watches that commemorate that, that have a Canadian component uh, are a big part of what we do. We want to share our Canadian heritage with the world. Uh, we think it's pretty exceptional. We think watches are a pretty good way to do that. It's very subtle. It's very Canadian. I may walk around with this and you may never notice it or ask a question, yeah. but if you notice it, I'll talk about it all night. Uh, and that's kind of that Canadian you know, pride that we have in our history. Uh, so we try our best to to do as much as we can uh, and source from Canada. Obviously, it's a difficult industry uh, driven by a world market. Uh, but using, you know, uh, having our watches assembled in Canada, having as much of the materials around the watch uh, be Canadian is a priority for us. And uh, we're growing. It's a small business, but uh, it's uh, it's super fun. It's a passion. Uh, and I love it. Now, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the the watch industry took a hit yesterday on social media because um someone in sports put this watch for sale for like twenty four hundred dollars and someone who does uh they they're focused on like the the garment industry how the markups and stuff 
but they found this website where it says start your own watch brand and the watch this guy was selling for $2,400 was on this start your own watch brand website for $42. So they're like the fact that he did this. So I, I'm only going to assume you guys aren't uh, doing the same thing that this person was who got called out for it. Well, and I'm sure you've seen that in the industry as well, because you're like, wait a second, they're charging this. They're just getting a generic watch from some factory in China. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And that was a big uh, initiator of this as well is as a micro brand, you have to have an offering. And, and our goal is to provide the highest quality watch we can um, at, a, at an accessible price. Uh, is, is critically important, especially being a micro brand and obviously being a purely commodity driven uh, industry. Uh, it watches about, you know, how you feel when you wear it. Um, um, and, and so we do our best to source the, the best pieces we can uh, acquire the best movements, the highest quality watch offered at a fair and accessible price, knowing uh, that we're speaking to a market who, who may not be uh, in the bracket to, to buy a, a Rolex or an Omega, but want to want to enter into a high quality, you know, start to get into the automatic watch space and into that game a little bit. And uh, we feel that while you know you're buying a micro brand, you're also you know buying a story, and you get the opportunity to wear your history uh, and resonate with a piece of ours that that speaks to something unique in your past. I mean, we've we've done a commemoration of the Avro Arrow. Uh, you wouldn't oh, believe wow. how many people have have connections to the story of the Arrow project. You know, grandparents who worked on the project, you know, you hear, you know, generational impacts that that had on lives of Canadians. Um, again, the, the Camp X story is, is something that's that's very powerful. And, and you know, we continue to build a new narratives uh, that, that capture the entirety of, of what it means to be Canadian and give people an opportunity to remind that no matter where they are, whether they're you know at home or abroad, that they can take a piece of their history with them. So one day. uh probably the first year I had this house, I walked outside and there was a piece of a piece of newspapers blowing down the street. And I picked one up. I'm like, this is from like 1954. I'm like, what is, it was so trippy. I'm like, what is going on? And the, it was a front page and it had the Avro arrow on it. So I framed it and put it up in our uh, dining room. I later found out that they were gutting an old, place down the street and that was what they had for the insulation but for a moment i thought i'd been stuck or transported back in time that a paper from 1954 ended up on my doorstep so yeah i've got the avro arrow uh front page story in my dining room it's pretty cool that's that's a pretty unique cool it was a if people don't know the story it was a canadian designed and manufactured plane how many of them did they make oh like not many, not right? Many. No, it yeah. was the most high tech interceptor of the time. Yeah, um, there's still a very a lot of secrecy around around the project and what ultimately uh, canceled the pro- the project. But it was a representation of Canadian innovation and contribution to aerospace engineering. Uh, we were a foremost leader uh, during that period, um, and uh, as as we've learned, you know, certainly a great source of a lot of nostalgic pride for for Canadians who were connected to that especially in, you know, Midwestern Canada as well, around Winnipeg, of course, and uh, some of the other are uh, Royal Canadian Air Force sites. Okay, now uh, we're getting into um, 
This is uh, what a lot of people uh, enjoy hearing from former players. We're going to go through a list of former teammates here for you. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you were at the Leafs in 05-06, it was a who's who. You had Sundin, Tucker, Domi, Ed Belfort, Jeff O'Neill, Thomas Caberlet, Kyle Wellwood. We love Welly, Brian McCabe. Now, I'm not going to single out a single player, but that's a lot of personality in that room. Was it too much or did it work? They were, I still look back at that group uh, so fondly. Like that's what, you know, when I look at the, the, the bulb of what it meant to be a professional, uh, to, the level of quality, like so many of my, my professional members becoming a National Hockey League player uh, happened in that locker room, spent my first day beside Matt's in the locker room. And it's, it's wild. And the story I often tell about that team is it taught you how to be a pro and take care of young players. That's something that team was so good at. Um, they just took care of, of, of the young players made, you know, it, it was their, their obligation and duty to ensure you were taken care of. Uh, Jeff O'Neill, uh, one of the funniest guys I ever played with. Um, also one of the most caring, uh, he, he bought tickets for my whole family for my first game. Uh, he didn't know, uh, he found out that morning that it was, and literally he did that, um, which I couldn't have done on my own at the time. Um, uh, but he went out of his way to do something very special for me. And, and, you know, that that act of kindness has obviously stuck with me, you know, 20 some years later. Ah, that's awesome. I uh, love O'Doug. Uh, Carolina, you played with Rod Brindamore. Did you know playing with him that he would become a coach? Yes. Yes. His, uh, his, his passion for the game, uh, his intensity to, that he brought to the game uh, wasn't something that you, you could see, you know, fading. Uh, he still had a lot to give <laughs> Um, both intellectually and physically to the game. I, I would say uh, you, could, you could get Rod back out there today, probably. Uh, he could take some pretty critical face-offs for you. Um, but he had an intensity, and you didn't have to be told by Rod. He, he, the, his presence um, and his demeanor demonstrated where the locker room needed to be at that time. Uh, and just was a leader by doing. He did everything that was expected of you. Uh, and that was very powerful. So as a coach, I, I'm not surprised in the slightest of his success, which I think will only continue because he brings that same intensity and passion. Did you ever play with someone who was in the gym more than him? Well, the, the problem is that you never always knew when Rod was in there because he was always in there so early. Like, how long have you been here? <laughs> uh, Manny Malhotra was close. Manny Malhotra was oh, a okay. specimen. Um, that's for sure. Also taking the coaching route. I'm doing great. Um, but yeah, Rod was, was in a, in a league of his own, uh, as far as, um, his commitment to fitness, uh, truly a lifestyle for him. Corey Stillman from my hometown of Peterborough. I think they call his nickname was grumpy. I could see that. I didn't find, uh, Corey very grumpy. <laughs> um, he was, he was pretty, we played together in, in Carolina very briefly. He was, he was not a lot grumpier than Corey. <laughs> uh, Eric Stahl, the face of that team. Yeah, Eric Stahl actually became, you know, one of my closest friends in the game. Um, again, a true professional uh, in his commitment to the game as a man as well. I have enormous respect for for the man that Eric is and, uh, you know, really someone I admired and looked up to, you know, as, as, a, as an athlete as a teammate, but also as a father and, you know, a guy who contributes to his community and society. 
Uh, so I have, I have a huge amount of admiration for, for Eric, his brothers as well. Um, what a exceptional group of young men. Um, so Eric and I got to spend a, a lot of time together, um, sat beside each other on the plane actually for a couple of years. So a lot of uh, in-depth conversations, that's for sure. Well, he's a farm boy. Of course, he's a good kid. <laughs> I, I think they had a sod farm. That's what they had. That's um, right. you yeah. are, you're able to tell anyone you pass on the street that you played with Michael Jordan. <laughs> I just bring him up because I, I, I forgot that there was a Michael Jordan in the NHL, but he was from Europe Czech, somewhere. Czech Republic. Czech. Yeah. Michael Jordan. I always love the Czech guys because, uh, they learn a very locker room English. Um, and they master it. It's, it's perfect. Their adoption of the language is perfect, but they use phrases like, you know, just like, it is what it is, boys. And with a Czech accent, it's like, um, <laughs> you know, it's always, you know, like, uh, it was always found it funny. And, and they, they would just pick up the, the phrases and use them perfectly. But they always had, a, you know, this, obviously, their, their Czech accent. Um, but it was, it was always such a profound thing. They were so quick to pick up on the language and use these things that we, you know, always said in the locker room. Um, so perfectly. Michael was great at it. Yeah. Uh, then you went to Winnipeg to close it out on the NHL side of things. Uh, another packed room of big names. Andrew Ladd, Blake Wheeler, Brian Little, Dustin Bufflin, Evander Kane. Now, who of the, maybe not even any of those players, who stood out to you on that Jets team from 2014-2015? Oh, there's a lot of guys in, in a lot of different ways. You know, I think that year... Buff really demonstrated uh, his dominance, the ability to move around the ice and and really be be a, a man amongst boys uh, in his physicality. Uh, I was always uh, you know drawn to Blake Wheeler as a player. I found him incredibly difficult to play against. So uh, part of my development was pairing myself up against Blake every day I could in practice. He'd beat he'd beat me. <laughs> quite a bit, but I know I was getting better at a great admiration for his game and his commitment to it. Mark Shifley's knowledge of the game un, 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 unmatched uh, and his awareness of players uh, and his, his commitment to studying the game. Uh, Chris Thorburn is maybe one of the greatest teammates uh, I've ever had the chance to play with. Um, it's just a, it's a great family you know, of players. And, and certainly uh, there were others on that team as well. Andrew Ladd is a leader, you know, very much in the Eric Stahl vein. Um, you know, very, you know, stoic and committed leader. So, um, yeah, when you start reflecting on these relationships, like the, the gratitude is just, it's overwhelming even in this moment right now. So gratitude, it's a great thing. Um, and last question, Connor McDavid is in a league of his own. You talk to any player, you watch games like people are like, it, it's crazy his skill at times, as opposed to everyone else, looks like he's in a different league. Can you look to one player you played with or against who was anywhere close to that in your time in the NHL? Where you would play against them or play with them and say, man, this guy, I don't know where he got these skills, but they didn't teach him in the same school I went to. Yeah, I, I can't say Connor is, is so unique uh, in his ability to, to elevate his game in, in the snap of the fingers and, and reach almost like another level of, of awareness, uh, you know, whether that's physically or, or mentally and how he sees the ice or how he creates space, you know, certainly different um, than, than Wayne did, but not, you know, necessarily different in the, in the outcomes. You know, I always said the guy always that people ask me who, who gave you the most trouble as a player and Datsuk always gave me the most trouble because, um, 
The magic man. Yeah. Is it now you see him and now you don't? (laughs) Um, Yeah, he was that. He was he was hard as iron when you hit him, and like soft and silky when he had the puck. And you know, he just he did everything well. um, You know, without having to appear to try too hard. Um, You know, again, a very different type of of talent, but I still think worthy of. a tip of the hat and say, you went to the hockey school that I never went to. And that is no criticism of CHE because it was a damn good hockey school. <laughs> I've been to some of their events. They're interesting. Uh, Dr. Jay Harrison, um, you're the first doctor to ever appear on Boomsies. And it's the first episode of Boomsies where we don't have to beep anything. I didn't swear. So I guess I act more appropriately around doctors. So I appreciate uh, you being here and I uh, hope you have a, a great uh, uh, Christmas break. Have you a great holidays with your family because uh, you're surrounded by little young women, the exact same as I. And some people see that as a curse, but we both see it as a blessing. Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat. Um, I always find, you know, just telling one story uh, can be so powerful in shaping and making meaning, reflecting on new things, new nuggets come out of every conversation. So it was an opportunity to experience gratitude and share a little bit of my message and passion for the future as well for our athletes, not just the professional ones, but the, the professionals of tomorrow and those who are looking to you know acclimate their fullest potential through the game. And that's just not a performance. It's not just goals and assists, but use the game as a platform uh, to access parts of yourself uh, that, you know, you probably couldn't otherwise having the unique ability to play. It's a privilege to do so uh, treated as such. Um, I hope you have a great holiday as well. Uh, raising daughters is, is a, a, another one of those privileges as well. Not without its challenges, uh, yeah. but I wake up ready and willing every single day. <laughs> and you know how I end each podcast. So you can give your, um, your psychology take on this. I, I tell everyone hug somebody and be nice to people. It doesn't cost you anything. Amen. You know, being, being a, a good person requires no talent, right? That's, <laughs> That's right. A, a, Just be a good person. Yeah, it requires no talent to do the right thing. It doesn't make it easy, but do it anyway. Welcome to Boomsies with Dan O'Toozy. Live from Orno in the heart of Ontario. Oh, baby, Boomsies. Thanks for listening to Boomsies with Dan O'Toole on the Bet Rivers Network.